And that's just the way it was. It says there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And so as we come to chapter 15, now we're just going forward with the, the reign of King Saul, but we're moving toward the introduction of David, King David. And we'll get David tonight even before we finish. So we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 15. Samuel the prophet had also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came out from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, oxen, sheep, camel, and donkey. So Saul gathered all the people together and numbered them and tell I am 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul went to a city of Amalek and laid in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Canaanites, Go depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And so the Canaanites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, the king of the Amaleks, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. This is the introduction to this story that is the story of the entire chapter of chapter 15. There's a great opportunity in these passages we just read. There's a challenging commandment, and then there's the inability to follow through and obey what God said to do. So first of all, contextually, the Amalekites, of course, are the perpetual enemies of Israel. If the Canaanites were doomed by God, and they were hundreds of years before Israel ever even came out of Egypt. So in our timeline right now, Saul is about 1000 BC, the nation of Israel. The Israelites have been in the promised land for about 400 years. The book of Judges, we read all that. The book of Ruth, that's all there. And they had come out of Egypt 40 years prior to that. And 400 years before that, they had gone down to Egypt. So around 2000 BC is Abraham. And at the time of Abraham, God had said to him in the dream that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. But when it was, the people that inhabited the land, the Canaanites, Israel that they are to be utterly destroyed. There was no redeeming of them ethnically as a people group, as people groups. They sacrificed their children, they had sex with animals, and they were evil. In fact, they're actually truly a contagion. They were dangerous to every other society that was redeemable and every other ethnic group that was redeemable. And so Israel had had this kind of command before to God gave the Canaanites 400 years to get things right, but they never did. So by the time Israel came into the promised land, under the leadership of Joshua, their destruction was set and sure, and they were to be completely obliterated as, as a judgment from God, and also to protect the people of God from the contagion of the evil, what they did, the Canaanites, and how it would affect God's people, because bad company corrupts good morals. Rarely does good morals elevate bad company. It's usually the opposite, and the Bible makes that clear although there are some rare exceptions in that case. So when you, get to, when you get to the Amalekites, they're not Canaanites. They're, they're different. But they're under the same type of judgment that the Canaanites were under, and, but for a different reason. The Amalekites were a Bedouin people 
there in, on the borders of Egypt. And when the Jews came out of the promised land as a new nation, after they escaped Pharaoh, the hand of Pharaoh, and all that stuff, led by Moses, when they came out, the Amalekites, they attacked the back. They attacked the elderly, the sick, the handicapped, and all the weak people. They were ruthless, and they were brutal. And they, they swarmed on them, and they attacked them. And we read about this in the book of Exodus, how they did this. So evil was that act, and so far reaching for them in a societal manner as Bedouins, that now, 500 years later, that's, man, that's half a millennium. 500 years is a long time, and they're under judgment. But these people are, in fact, a spiritual contagion, in fact, of the worst kind, because their contagion is against Jesus Christ the promised redeemer of Israel. Their contagion and their evil is so demonic and so sinister that the real driving force behind them attacking Israel and their subsequent descendants who were spared in this story goes all the way to King Herod trying to kill Jesus, the child, a thousand years after this. Because Herod is an Edomian, a descendant of the Amalekites. And these people, so when God made the promise that a redeemer would come to save the world, Jesus Christ, his son, back in Genesis 3, the first prophecy, and all the promises that introduced Jesus to us and the coming Messiah, the shadow of things to come, and all the prophecies, hundreds of prophecies, the typologies, Abraham offering up Isaac, all these things. It's the beauty and the holiness and the goodness of God moving forward to redeem humanity. And the spiritual battle against that is declared even in Genesis 3.15, because it says that the Messiah, when he comes, he'll, that the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush his head. And that's symbolic of the, the battle between good and evil, between Satan and the principalities and powers described to us in the book of Ephesians, and the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross and the empty tomb. Jesus' total victory, dying on the cross and rising from the grave. But the long war against God from Satan, it's recorded for us in the book of Revelation, when we read about him being cast out and thrown to the earth, it's there, and we're in it. When you live for Jesus, you're in this battle. But in the first prophecy concerning Jesus, the battle is declared. And of all the people and things that have opposed the nation of Israel's existence, and particularly the promised Messiah who had come through them, there's no people that were a greater threat in human manner with satanic support than the Amalekites. They are truly the most contagion of all contagions for evil against God's people. Because even Haman in the book of Ruth, 600 years later, it's a whole book in the Bible. It's a Jewish holiday celebrated every year by the Jewish people. It's one of their major holidays, Purim, is related to Amalekites. Because Haman, who tried to destroy the Jews and bribe a a decree against the Jews so that everyone in the Medo-Persian Empire could attack the Jews, kill them, and take their prosperity, their wealth, He was not only an Amalekite, but his title implies he was an Amalekite king. So 600 years after these events, a descendant who is spared from this group almost eradicates the Jewish people and the promised messianic line to come through the Jewish people from the tribe of Judah and the house of David. So that's the background to understanding the Amalekites. But even so, God always does what's good, true, just, noble, praiseworthy, and honorable. And if God says that people are doomed, they are doomed. And it's a perfect righteousness in their condemnation 
and judgment. But I give you the background just so you have a fuller understanding. Wipe out everything. And by the way, in the law, we're told that any animals taken from these evil people cannot be sacrificed to the Lord. So Saul's moving toward a liberal theology as a king. He's just saying, I don't believe that. I'm going to do it my way. And that's what liberal theology does in the church of Jesus Christ. So we should always know that God be true and every man a liar. And it's always better to let God's word judge us than us to judge God's word and say, well, I don't think that's fair. Or I'm just going to rewrite my theology to fit how I want to live my life in a self-serving religion, which is exactly what King Saul did. That's the background here in the introduction. But in the midst of all this, what really gets my attention, it's a good word for every one of us that I, that I appreciate and I think we all do. God already said that Saul was fired. Remember, I used that term, like, you're fired. Like, you got fired right away. Like, you're the king of Israel. And like, after a two-year internship, whatever, you're fired. Because he took the role of the, of the prophet when he's not a prophet. And he took the role of a priest with the offering. And he's not a prophet or a priest. He's the king. And there's a difference. Just because you're in the White House and you're the most powerful person in the world doesn't mean you go in the church and think you own the pulpit of any church. The church belongs to Jesus. The apostle Caesar belongs to Caesar. And that really was the error of Saul. When he made that early sacrifice and did what he did, it was presumptuous, it was evil, and so evil, God fired him. But what's amazing to us in this text right here is God gives him a second chance. It's sort of like when people plead before a judge, they're repeat offenders, and they're pleading before a judge. And the judge just, okay, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna give you another chance with this one. And you really hope they make it. By the way, that's why my sister's testimony is such a joy to so many people because so many times when she was on the streets and had all these misdemeanors and even some felonies, like you start a fire in the back parking lot of the post office. That's actually arson on federal property, so that's, that's a felony. And, uh, but in her rehabilitation and as she got sober and clean, living in the halfway house and taking public transportation, she had a number of divine appointments with policemen who had formally arrested her. And they were just so joyful and so excited that she'd been sober for a year or two years and she was had a full-time job at Macy's and in a halfway house. And it, it encouraged them because they're law enforcement people and they don't want to keep arresting the same homeless people doing destructive things week in, week out with petty crimes. Go down to Otay Mesa, you're there for a month, you come out and you do the thing again, you're at Vista Jail. And you know, it, it, gets, it gets hard. Linda Barrett, who sang at my wedding, our wedding, Jennifer and I's wedding, She's a chaplain for the women at Vista County Jail. They're at Vista, right off Melrose. And she ministered to my sister time and time again, every time my sister was in and out of jail, as a homeless person causing problems upon the community of Vista. And she rejoices to see my sister where she's at and turn it around and where she's at five years later. Because our God is the God of the second chance. And judges want to give criminals a second chance, especially early on before it goes bad. And judges, they want to hope for the best in society. And there are laws that become favorable if you make the right decisions and you do your two years of DUI school, and for your two DUIs, you can get your license restored. And that makes people happy. Like, it makes people happy to restore those things because our God is a God of restoration. And we see of all the people with second chances, Peter's probably the best example. Because Peter, of course, denied the Lord three times. 
and was a colossal failure and wept in shame. But then resurrected Jesus there at the Sea of Galilee, said, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Tend my flock. Three times Peter said yes. So as Peter denied the Lord three times, Peter also got to say, I love you, Lord, three times. And as I said last Saturday, you just never know. If you walk on water, and even if you sink, you just still might be the person that's under tongues of fire on the day of Pentecost. The man who had faith to walk on water to Jesus is the same man who had tongues of fire over his head with supernatural power to, to lead the birth of the church, which we are connected to tonight. Who we are tonight, in Jesus' name, our songs, our communion, our sitting here, our fellowship, it's directly related to the day of Pentecost. And Peter, the man who denied the Lord three times and then confessed his love three times and then had tongues of fire to change the world. Our God truly is the God of the second chance. And here, you got to believe God gave Saul a second chance. So when God gives you and me a second chance, we need to really, you know, like we need to really respond to it. Like we need to really respond to it. And more often than not, where we've had great failures, God will allow us to revisit, maybe not the exact situation that was the failure, but the general principle of the failure, and give us a second chance. Give us a chance to really get it right, to show that our heart's been changed like Peter, from three denials to three confessions of, yes, I love you. And so I would just say a good application for us is, if we see that lifeline... And like we feel like we've been fired or we've been benched and then the Lord really turns it back around and gives us another chance. We need to rise to the occasion and we need to be victorious where we had previously been a failure. And we need to recognize those opportunities and fulfill them to the fullest that we have. Because so many people, when they walk away from the Lord, they never come back to the Lord because they don't really... They were never like given a second chance and it was, wasn't in them. It's like God just let them be what they want to be. Dull ears, hard heart, blinded eyes. Like that's what they want and he gives it to them. But some people, when they make big mistakes with the Lord and they feel horrible, all of a sudden they do sense a second chance. And the best of the kingdom, they respond to that second chance. Saul didn't, but Peter did. And many others, and some of you in this room are saying, this me, I'm that woman. On that man, the second chance is a beautiful thing when the Lord gives it to us. Because God already said you're fired and you're not going to be the king, but here's a second chance. Which also brings up another point that's interesting is we've seen people that God gives a second chance and yet they repeat the same folly of the first time. Saul repeats the same folly of the first time and it's, it's sad. It, it is sad. We have to admit it's sad that he repeats the same folly. He doesn't obey the Lord. But he always invokes the Lord, talks about the Lord, quotes the Lord, thinks he's right with the Lord. He's delusional. He's self-deceiving delusional. But I just, Saul's problem is his problem. What I like is that God gave him a second chance. And I think we can all agree that we like a second chance, which means not only do we want to receive a second chance, but it's a good thing for all of us when we have within our hearts to give people a second chance. Now, there might be people that are they're like the Amalekites, and they're just given over. And that's that. But you and I don't know who those people are. So we never make that call in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. God can make that call. But our call is if knowing that 
His mercies are new every morning that God does give us a second chance, and we want to be gracious with other people. And I go back to Big Calvary with being on staff with Pastor Chuck Smith. The second year I was there, there was a pastor that had fallen, a Calvary Chapel pastor. And he, he, he was just that guy. And um, Chuck brought him on staff. Chuck gave him a, a good landing. He, he gave him a landing. In fact, he even gave him a night to teach in the sanctuary. And it created quite a stir amongst the 30 pastors on staff at that time. Like, oh my goodness, what is Chuck doing? And Chuck gave that man a good chance to be rebuilt and renewed in his ministry. And that man did not receive the benefit of it. He did exactly at Big Calvary what he'd done before that. And when he left Big Calvary, he went on to the same thing. And I can tell you the last time I checked, 20 years later, he's the same kind of guy doing the same kind of thing that got him in trouble 20 plus years ago. Now, his life's not my problem. The man in the mirror is my problem. So when I look at that, I go like, I don't want to be that. But what I did learn from Chuck is to err in grace. Because I always say that's one of the three things I learned from Pastor Chuck, to err in grace. And I always think of that man because Chuck did err in grace. And he, he loves, hopes all things, believes all things, and bears all things, and never fails. And Chuck really wanted that guy to make it. He really did. And he gave him a chance to make it. But like Saul, he didn't make it. But I feel like in some ways, when I was on staff, I'd come from failure. I hadn't been in ministry. I had not been a pastor in any church for three years prior to going on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa. And I feel like I got a second chance with Pastor Chuck. And the jury's still out how much I've really made it, but I'm very grateful I got a second chance. And I'm teaching the Bible tonight, verse by verse, in 2022. Amen? Yeah. Listen. Run with that second chance. And, it, and, you know, be willing to be like Chuck to give people a second chance. Uh, I gave up on my sister. My mom never gave up on my sister. That's what I learned from my mom. She never gave up on my sister. I gave up on my sister. You know, we never stop learning, do we? We never really stop learning. But if we can grow in grace, we will keep learning. Verse 10 reads on now. So Saul's rebuked for not doing what he's supposed to do. He's rebuked. He didn't do what he's supposed to do, and he's fully rebuked by Samuel the prophet. Well, he's going to be. And, uh, but he says, you know, I, I did everything you told me to do. Like, I did this, but I, you know. And he, okay, verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, this is the Lord speaking to Samuel, I greatly regret that I've set up Saul as king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he has set up a monument for himself. And he's gone down, he's gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ear and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, Well, they, they, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we've utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said, Speak on. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over uh, Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission. And said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, but, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. 
and, and gone on the mission of what the Lord sent me. And I brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, the sheep, the oxen, and the best of things which, which should have been dest- utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. You know, in ministry for 34 years, I've met so many people like this, and I just don't want to be them, and I don't want you to be this person. This is that person that self-willed, presumptuous, does what they want, goes to church, and maybe they serve in this ministry or give money to this ministry, and somehow they build this religion in their mind that's completely self-deceiving and delusional, that's self-serving and self-centered, where everything revolves around them. They're not servants. They're the central gravity of everything that goes on when they go to church, when they watch TV, uh, somebody teaching on TV or the radio. They don't hear what you hear, and they don't see what you hear when you have a tender heart. And they're definitely not servants. They're self-serving, self-seeking. And Saul's that guy. That's who he is. No matter what's presented to him, oh, it's the people's fault. It's their fault. Oh, I did obey the Lord. We We just can't be this person. The most important thing we can do in life when we blow it is own it. Because if you own it, you can grow from it. But if you blame someone else, you're just going to get in that cycle. And all of us probably know somebody that always blames everybody else. Yeah, but. And I think that's the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, that's within us. It's so hard to be transparent with ourselves in the mirror. And to, it's so humbling It is so hard to accept 100% responsibility for our failures. It goes against, it's counterintuitive to our self-seeking, selfish, fallen nature. It was years ago when my wife said to me, when you apologize, it's better if you say you're sorry and don't say but. I'm sorry, period, is really good. But I'm sorry, but, you know, that person cut me off. I'm sorry, but those things, those people said that about me, and I'm in a bad mood now. Like, just say, I'm sorry. And it's not about this person or those people or this thing or whatever. Some days are better than others. Some are worse than others. Just be the best you can be. And the best you can be is to admit when you're wrong completely and accept it. Not long ago, an incident happened where one of our leaders in the church was upset with me about something. And I, I heard it out. I thought about it. I prayed about it. And I went back to the other person and said I was sorry. Now, the funny thing about that story is the person I apologized said to, I didn't think anything of it. It's just you and me being the way we are. And I go, yeah, but it, it upset someone else. So I truly am sorry. But I, I didn't apologize for about three weeks because for three weeks I was like, yeah, but. I was like, yeah, but if they didn't just open their mouth in the first place. And said all that when it was inappropriate at times. Like, you know, you know, like it's kind of like the email you write but never send, and then you delete the first paragraph or you delete this paragraph. Like it's eight paragraphs, like, and eventually you just down like one paragraph. You're just like, what? trash it. That's what we need to do. Saul could never. It, he just could never accept responsibility for his failures. And we will do well in life and we will advance in life with the Lord and in our place of employment, essentially, and in human relationships, if we can say, I'm sorry when we're at fault. Because if we can't say we're sorry and recognize our mistakes, there's no growing. There's just delusional self-deception. And as humbling as it is to be 
to admit our failures and work through that emotionally, it's still much better than being self-deceived and delusional that everything's fine when it's not. Because the problem when you're delusional, because you notice this when you see other people are delusional, you know they're delusional. They just don't know they're delusional. God forbid anyone look at you and say, that woman is delusional with the Lord, with her perspective and everything. We don't ever want someone to say that about any of us and have it be true. Saul had a second chance. He failed again. And he's going to keep on failing because he's never going to be willing to look in the mirror and say, I am the problem. I am at fault. I am to blame. Now, David would fail. And he would say, I am to blame. And I am at fault. And that's why God loved him. Because face it, we all fail, right? We're all going to fail. We never catch the Lord off guard with our failures. We catch ourselves off guard with our failures. And maybe people we love are caught off guard. But never the Lord. Failure is inevitable. Growth is optional. Verse 22. So Saul does the blame game. And then verse 22, Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. There it is. You're fired again. Verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore, and it tore. And so Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring Agag, the king of the Malachites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously, and Agag had said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Saul just, he's that guy. I mean, he's just that guy. He had his chances, great opportunity, and he couldn't handle it. Some people just can't handle success. And I would like to think as we grow in the Lord, we can handle success. Some people just can't handle power, right? Power is a very dangerous thing in the human experience. Some people go nuts when they have power. Look what the last two years happened all over the planet. It wasn't just our country or our state. People in power love power, and they want more power. And they'll do whatever they can to keep it and to exercise it and flex it. They always say with Stalin, and when he killed 50 million people in Russia under the Soviet Union, that one person doesn't kill 50 million people. 
they replicate themselves with other people that are just like them on the lowest level to local magistrates and local bosses and local prison keepers and local police officers and local criminals, and they just replicate themselves. Saul had a great opportunity, and he crashed and burned it. And it's just a reminder to us, when God gives us great opportunities, let us be prepared for them, and through humility and faith and obedience, fulfill it. I don't think Samuel woke up that day and said, I just can't wait to hack Agag in pieces. Now, we don't come from a society with war like this. When I was reading my book on Peter the Great, before when his dad came to power, there was all these different coups in Russia. It was like, uh, I don't know, like 16, 1680 in Russia. But it scarred him for life as a child that there was a power struggle between different groups and there was a massacre of hundreds of people there at the Kremlin in the Kremlin Square. And Peter the Great was scarred by that for his entire life, affected by that. But that's the way Europe is. If we were Huguenots and followers of Christ in France in the late 1700s, you know, there's a reason people say you fear the guillotine because they executed tens of thousands of people with the guillotine, which Gilo invented. And there's a reign of terror. If we're Aztecs, mind our own business, and the conquistadors show up, guess what? We're wiped out by the plague and by them. Human beings do great evil to one another, especially when they've known each other a long time, like the current war we see going on right now in Europe. You know, Europe goes to war about every 60 years. They redefine boundaries and, and borders and frontiers. If you know your Euro history, you know this. Franco-Prussian wars, Napoleonic wars. I mean, this, it's hard for us to relate to something like this. But war is brutal. It's horrible. My mom said my dad was never the same when he came back from Vietnam. And my dad... part of, he saw a lot of horrible things. And I just praise the Lord that most of us have never been a part of anything like this. There's a reason people get PTSD from war violence. But you know, in this event where Samuel takes care of Agag, he is completing what was incomplete from Saul. So you never know someone else's mess in their unbelief and their pride that God called them to do that God might call you to complete. And no one ever said this would be easy. But we always have to remember what we're doing with the hard things that God calls us to do. I've had to confront people and remove them from the church. I've had to call the police out here. We've had to force a man right there out of this place not that long ago who refused to leave late at night with a black backpack. We've had stalkers. that we've, I've had to confront a stalker that wanted to, he wanted to cause me harm in this parking lot 10 years ago. There's not easy things. It's not always easy tending the flock and obeying the Lord what he asked for you to do. But if you got to hack Agag, then hack him. And if someone's disobedience has left the, the work of God unfinished and God says, you're the one because I can trust you with anything, then do the hard thing and finish the job that God's calling to be done. Because when Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? He said, yes, then tend my flock. And tend my flock isn't just food and fellowships and home groups where everyone pats each other on the back and says, shalom, shalom, and maranatha. Ten my flock is God striking down Ananias and Sapphira in front of the entire church in Acts chapter 5. There are hard things that we have to face when we obey the Lord. Very hard things. 
But to obey is better than sacrifice. And so many people back down from the hard things and won't confront things and deal with things. And they still go to church and they tithe and they serve and they do this and that. And they think it's all good with the Lord. But they're long far from the Lord because they weren't willing to do the hard things that God called them to do that were a real test of their faith and obedience in the first place. So I commend Samuel for stepping up and doing a very difficult thing that no one else wanted to do. And contextually, it's hard for us to relate to this type of a thing. But it's war. And if we don't eliminate contagion, if we don't wage war on spiritual contagion in our life and execute it and crush it, it will come back to us to try and destroy us and our descendants at a later time. Just ask Esther, Esther when you get to heaven what Haman was like. Because Haman is a descendant of those who avoided Saul's disobedience, who benefited from Saul's disobedience in this chapter. Verse six, chapter 16. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will, will you mourn for Saul, seeing I've, I've rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? I think people are already afraid of Saul. He was a totalitarian and authoritarian. People are already afraid of him. You should be excited when the, the prophet shows up at your town and be like, whoa, did you come peaceably? Like, there's concern. Verse 5, and he said, peaceably. I come peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, All the young men here. And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. And this is what we find in life. Where one woman fails, God will raise up another woman. Where one man fails, God will raise up another man. No man, no woman is completely irreplaceable at any given time in the body of Christ. Everything has seasons, and every generation is in motion. And a generation is essentially an 80-year timeline because Moses said the days of man are 70 years or by measure of strength 80. So we know, like, and trust me, when you're 61, you know what it looks like 60 to 70, observing those in front of you, right? Amen? Yes and amen, WG? And you know what 70 to 80 looks like, because you know people that are 70 to 80. And they know what 80 looks like, and 80 to 90. And they know what 90 plus looks like, because I see it every week when I have my dad. And there's a timeline. And we're all moving through. 
and people come and go. And there's great leaders, and then there's not the same. Like when Billy Graham passed away, who's going to be the next Billy Graham? Obviously nobody. There's only one Billy Graham. He was that special man for his timeline for the Church of Jesus Christ worldwide during the time of the, the Cold War. There's no one even remotely close to Billy Graham's impact with the gospel at the highest level of global politics and the consistent visibility of character and witness for Christ in all circumstances of life with no shadow of attorney. There's been great evangelists like Greg Laurie, Luis Paul, others like that. We come and go. We all come and go. And whether someone's replaced because someone dies, like when Moses died and Joshua replaces him, or someone's replaced because they forfeited themselves and disqualified themselves, we're all replaceable. And Saul is replaceable. He just doesn't know he's being replaced yet. But God's on the move, and he's already moving on to the next thing. And he's going to allow Saul and David to share the highway together in the most unusual way. We'll end tonight looking at this in just a moment. While one is being slowly phased out, the other one is being slowly prepared, and the two together have a purpose in God's plan and economy that's amazing. But it all starts with this kid in the field just mind his own business. But we do know about this kid in the field watching his dad's sheep. He was faithful with the household chores. In being in the field, he fought a bear and a lion, and he fought a bear and a lion because of his faith in the Lord and his faithfulness to do what was entrusted to him, taking care of his father's sheep. We know he was a gifted musician, and all that downtime in the field taking care of the sheep, he picked up his harp and he played music. And we know somehow the word went out how good he was, almost like a 16-year-old Phil Wickham, because I remember a 16-year-old Phil Wickham. And I said, I've never seen anything like this before. I'm not sure I'll see anything like this again. And he's going to lead worship at Calvary Coast to Mason 2000, the year 2000. And I said, you know, like, you just don't know. But the favor that God had on his life because of his heart before the Lord was evident to other people. And so here God chooses him. But yet again, we're reminded that God looks at the heart, not at the outward. He gave them a king that looked like a king. Saul was tall and handsome, and he, just, he looked like that guy. Now, David's handsome, but that's not his main draw point. David's faithful. That's his main draw point. That's his, that's his brand. His brand is that he's faithful. And isn't it amazing to think, having just done the book of Ruth, and we had Ruth on the radio for eight weeks, that from the story of Ruth and Boaz, that Jesse came, and here's Jesse's house. Three generations later, that beautiful story we read about, and here in the same city, a thousand years before Christ will be born there and declared to the angels, here in the same city now, a few generations later, because 80 years just keeps moving right along. The youngest, the eighth child, those that have bigger families, I think of the Yardley family, if you know the Yardley family from Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, all those Yardley kids. We were at Moon Goat yesterday, I was explaining to Bruce with me, yeah, that's David Yardley, that's, you know, like, uh, he's, the, you know, he's one that played baseball at Calvary, he's the first baseman. It's one of the Yardley kids. I think the Sweetens that used to go here, they got, I lost track. They just got a lot of kids. <laughs> I quit counting. It's like at least 10. And, for, you know, that's, these are large families. And it'd be so easy to think, like, all the kids, you lose track. But why is this one the one? You just don't know. Because God rejected the older brothers. 
But he chose David. He said, this is the guy. This is your guy right here. This is your guy. David had a heart for the Lord. And there's a mystery to us. There is a mystery. Why, why do children that grow up equally in the same godly household, why do some have a greater heart for the Lord than others? Who can know it? When you're young with young children and you see people with adult children and you see adult children that walk with the Lord or don't walk with the Lord, you're really quick to have an opinion. Oh, it must be the parents' fault or whatever, but you don't realize until your kids are adults that they're self-determined. And adult children have choices. They most certainly, and yes and amen, they make choices. You do your best you can and you hope to walk with the Lord. But to me, I've yet to figure out why one in a household that's a godly household while some kids will walk with the Lord, have a heart for the Lord, and others won't at all, and resist the Lord, I don't understand it. I just want to be the one that does have a heart for the Lord. I caused the most trouble at catechism. I was the schooliest kid during Mass the entire time I went to Catholic services. <laughs> my, sister, my brother and my sister, they were, they were well-behaved. They'd sit in that pew for 45 minutes, not even blink. I'd just be like... My mom said I couldn't go to Catholic school because the nuns would beat me. And I laughed, and she said, I'm serious. They would have beaten you. My mom went to all-girls Catholic schools her entire life. My brother, he obeyed the rules. He's a rule follower. He went to Catholic school, and he did everything, and he is who he is, and where he's at with the Lord is him and the Lord. My sister went to Catholic school through junior high, and I don't know. I don't explain it. In my own family or your family, anyone else's family. All I know is you want to be the woman that has a heart for the Lord. You want to be the man that has a heart for the Lord. And what your, what your siblings choose to do is their business. And they might come against you walking with the Lord. Because we know that David's brothers will come against them and mock him. He was anointed in front of his brothers. They're like, whoa, the prophet Samuel's here. Oldest brothers, oldest brothers, like, varsity quarterback, what's up? Water boy in the field is who's going to be the next king. He's not even on the bench. He's water boy. And they're like, hey, water boy, he's the starting quarterback for Team Israel. That could create some jealousy in the family, couldn't it? For sure, especially with boys. Who can understand it except that, for sure, everyone of us in this room tonight, we're at church tonight or we're watching this service, that's enough to tell us that we want to be the woman or the man that has a heart for the Lord. And no matter what we've done before this day, we can purpose this day to say, Lord, I'm that woman that's going to have a heart for you. Lord, I'm that man that's going to have a heart for you. And where my heart has failed in the past, maybe like Saul, I want to be the one that takes advantage of the second chance like Peter. And I want to show you I'm that woman that you can use, that you can restore and you can use, and I will have a heart for you, and I will learn from my mistakes, and I'll be tender-hearted, and I'll be merciful and gracious, and I will let all the difficult things in my life refine me to be an amazing woman that will make you proud of every day of my life because I'm willing to humble myself, to admit my mistakes, and grow and go forward. Move my heart towards you. And I want to be the man who does the same thing. And maybe you've been a hard-hearted man. Maybe you've been a devil-minded man. We can't change that but we can purpose to be the man now who, like David, we can't go back to being 17 and in the field with the sheep making good decisions in high school. But we can wake up at 60 and make really good decisions right now before we're in convalescent care. And if you can't start the journey being the heart for God in high school, you can end the journey being the heart for God 
in memory care. And that's a worthy goal for everyone listening to me right now. And for the young people, you don't know what memory care is, don't worry about it, you know. You'll think about it when you're 60, all right? And finally, we close out the text. Verse 14. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and uh, a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall be that he will play with it with his hand when the distressing spirit with God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with them. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey, loaded it with bread, a skin of wine, a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him. And he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take the harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. Man, God's always working on such a bigger plan. And the way, like it says, how unsearchable are his ways past finding, it says in Romans the story of Saul and David is, it's almost mind-bending when you think about it. That the king has rejected, the moment David's anointed with the Holy Spirit, a distressing spirit is sent by the Lord. Now you say, how does God send a distressing spirit? Easily. God's protecting all of us from distressing spirits right now. For all the spiritual battle we go through, living for Jesus, and the oppression that you might have on certain days, or the opposition you feel spiritually, supernaturally, can you imagine if God wasn't restraining the devil even more than he is? Because in the book of Job, the devil's like, Satan's like, hey, you, you, you remove that wall of protection, I'll shred this guy. And God says, actually, no, you won't. You'll see that he is a righteous man, and he, he'll stand by me. But Satan had asked permission to cross boundaries and barriers that God had erected around his life, Job's life. And God has protection around us. But when we walk away from the Lord, or we're not living for the Lord, those protections can go away. And he'll allow us to be chastened. And who knows what we might go through because of that. So God allowed, God had a protection around Saul. And then God removed that protection. And he went nuts. Which is a really good motivation to obey the Lord and walk with the Lord. Because when you see a lot of people that look like the other mind walking around planet Earth right now. And I don't understand mental illnesses and stuff. I've, I've tried to. It's, it's just not my wheelhouse. I just believe Jesus can heal people. And I believe the devil wants people in bondage. And I can pray for people. I don't understand chemistry, the chemicals of the brain, all that stuff. Like, you know, there's, a, there's billions of links between your central brain and all the parts of your brain and how it works. I, I, I don't get it. But I'll tell you what, what I discern is I see people out of their minds and I wonder how many of them rejected the Lord to get to that place where God gave them over. And they just fall apart. Like Pastor Chuck used to say, a genius and insanity, they're right next to each other. And if you're not walking with the Lord, you might just go right over the edge. Saul, God removed the protection on Saul's life. He removed the anointing and the protection. And at the same time, he put his spirit upon David 
And then he puts the two together. You might have an insane person out of their mind that's an adjutant and irritant in your life daily. They might have authority over you. They can tell your dad, send him, because that's what kings do, and he's going to work for me. And that might happen in your life. You might have a, a relationship in your life that you can't get rid of, and you're like, particularly like with exes and kids and custody battles and all stuff, like, you might think, I once married this person, and they were insane, and they're still trying to ruin my life 20 years later. But God, if he's allowing it, he's allowing it. And you can't become insane because they're insane. you got to become more broken and more Jesus-like as a result of that. The agitations of difficult bosses, difficult neighbors, difficult family members, they're all the souls in your life when you've got a heart for God and you've got the Spirit, they're designed to make you more dependent upon the Lord and more filled with the Spirit. And that's what God's doing here. As the king has been rejected, is going crazy, God's using him as a, a, a refining tool to make the king who will be, and he'll be the greatest of all kings pretty much in human history, to be ready for that time when they become a king. So don't underestimate the agitations and the grindings of the souls around us to make us to be great women and great men of God with hearts for God like David. I suppose, you know, if you've, if you've worked for Saul for like 10 years and he's chasing around trying to kill you, he's your father-in-law. Years later, when you're bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, man, you're going to dance in the streets in your, in your nightie. Life is good when you're growing and going forward with the Lord and confessing your sins and, and, and just doing, being real. And it's all about getting real right here. Saul grinding him is about getting real. And the last thought on this, is that it says he loved him. Now, Pastor Chuck, teaching this 30 years ago, says that it's David loved Saul. So in that verse, it says, and he became his armor bearer. So it says, and he loved him greatly, verse 21. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly and became his armor bearer. So Pastor Chuck says that, you know, he teaches that the one who loves is that David as a kid stands before the king. He's like, he loves the king. David Guzik says that that uh, Saul loves David and made him his armor bearer. And I consulted other commentaries that don't give clarity to it. It's almost an obscure verse that there's very few people that comment on it. But David Guzik, I respect very much, the Calvary pastor. And then Chuck, of course, I respect. So somebody loves somebody in this story. But one thing we know for sure is David did, in fact, love Saul. Because when he could have killed Saul and God delivered Saul to him, he never took vengeance on Saul. And he wrote a, a beautiful song about Saul in 2 Samuel when he died with Jonathan, and he makes Saul sound like a hero. He said, far be it for me to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. That's what David, in all that he went through with Saul, being his father-in-law, trying to kill him, and all the other things, he recognized the authority, the, the God-ordained authority of Saul in his life from the time he was a teenager standing before him, playing music for him. And he never let his heart be hard towards Saul. He always kept his heart tender towards Saul. There's a powerful message there that I'm sure we'll get to as we get deeper into this book. We can't let Saul break our will. We need to let, break our, our, our goodwill. We need to let Saul's break our pride and refine us to be greater men and women of God. And there are a lot in our lives 
And that's the lesson of the story. Because now it's not about Saul being rejected and being given over. Now it's about David being prepared for greatness. And that's what we're all looking at.